This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 28th, 2022, and this is a special emergency podcast. I'm Scott Delonaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We'll just cut to the chase. The Premier has announced his retirement. Somewhat expected unexpectedly. He'd te- been sort of teeing, toying with it, teasing it, not entirely denying it. I think well, I mean, on I'm- Friday he gave the most, like... Ask me again on Tuesday, kind of question response. Yeah, the uh, I'm having these, you know, I'm having conversations with my colleagues in cabinet about the future of my my premiership or something to that effect, which was a pretty clear. I'm going to be seriously thinking about this and probably going to be resigning because that's not the sort of thing you say if you're planning on staying on or even haven't made up your mind yet. Prior to that, he'd been far more cagey to leaning towards, yeah, I'm running again, which is what you usually say until you the hammer. And the hammer came today at, one, well, like 1.45. These press conferences never start on time. He talks about reaching the midterm, midpoint of the second term, and he needs to decide now whether he's in it to win it or if he needs to step back so that his team knows what's up rather than start asking his caucus, are you running again? He should make the decision himself. So he says, I am proud to say I'm cancer-free. While I have a lot of energy, I must acknowledge this may not be the case two years from now. Therefore, I have decided not to run again in the next election. He, in the press conference, set out that there's going to be a party convention, a leadership convention this fall, which will conveniently coincide with the municipal elections and or the conservative leadership race federally. Everyone loves a leadership race, it seems. Yeah, they're all happening. I think the UCP UCP is also having theirs in the same timeline. Well, they should have it in the same timeline. They just don't want to leave the premier's seat unfilled permanently for too long. And so here we are with John Horgan leaving on his own terms as we went through the greatest BC premier bracket. That's a super rare accomplishment. Most of them. Like, clearly the cancer has taken its toll on him and you can kind of really see that. And that was part of the reasons he gave that he wasn't, he, he didn't think he could commit to another six years given uh, everything with his health, his energy and whatnot. And that's entirely understandable, but yeah, we're on earth too. We, you know, six years from now, we could be talking about how, how John Horton managed to you know, win four consecutive uh, elections or, or something, but that's, that's not the hand that was dealt here. Well, you go back through BC politics history, right? And you go back 36 years before you get the first premier who resigned without like losing an election or having a massive scandal. And that was Bill Bennett. And even there, there was a lot going on in BC in the late 80s. And if you want to go back even further, you have to go back to like John Oliver way back in, I think, like the 1950s, 1940s. So it's been a long time since we've really had this kind of a, a premier leave while still popular. 
as the yeah. polls we talked about from Angus Reid showed recently. Yeah, his, his polling numbers were good, and I mean, to kind of jump into the kind of speculation about the future of the party, like, I, he was one of their biggest assets, I think. There are a lot of people out there who maybe aren't necessarily inherent NDP voters, but like and respected Oregon and... Uh, he definitely had the uh, the benefit of smoothing a lot of the NDP's rough edges off, and it's it's going to be a hard act to follow and a hard role to replace. He well, and the question comes up of like, what is the legacy that he's left? And that's what you kind of allude to slash where does it go from here? And, you know, if we think about the legacy, John Horgan is the first new Democrat to win re-election in BC politics history. He's the longest serving New Democrat premier. I think he's only about the 10th or 11th longest serving premier ever, which, you know, he might climb a little bit before his retirement, depending on the exact date. I didn't look that closely, but he's run a government that is starkly different than the NDP of the 90s. It's been largely scandal free, aside from like one minor, I think, cabinet issue and in citizen services and the museum. Yeah, the, the museum was definitely a miss, and uh, we talked last uh, about how he'd accept responsibility and can't basically set the project back to the drawing board, and the the benefit of him doing that, he probably knew he wasn't going to be sticking around at that point, is that it, it takes the, the weight of that off whoever's going to be following him on that, so uh, it's savvy political move on his part. Like one of the things he said earlier in the spring is I'll keep doing this job till it's no longer fun. And I kind of thought like losing your legacy project of a new BC museum probably took a lot of the fun out of it. And well, there are, there are, I'm other, not going to say the museum controversy brought him down by any stretch, but not, not at all. And there are other projects, big, big capital projects they can point to where a second tunnel at the Massey, we're getting a new Patello bridge. There's well, it's not just breaks. capital projects. We're getting tenant. $10 a day daycare. He can argue the campaign finance law reforms. Like there've been a lot of things that have changed in this province in five years. Yeah. And quite a bit of change, but also like not actually that radical government. A lot of it was just kind of the, you know, good managerial stuff that yeah, kind of need to be done, like writing ICBC and a few other things like that, where, you know, nothing that's going to make the more intellectual parts of the, the party stoked about any of it, but, you know, just the sort of thing that good government needed. And that was kind of, I think, the other thing that kind of stands out here is that, you know, I mean, it was unmistakably a left of center government, but like it wasn't, he didn't run one that, uh, streamed an ideological project or anything. It was almost liberal party-esque in some ways, which should be a compliment in this he case. He didn't but, make enemies. Yeah. I think is a better way to put it because, you know, being centrist is an ideology as well, but the, or, you know, non-committal or whatever we want to say, but this isn't a NDP that went out and sought to make a, a overt class war. They did raise taxes in a number of ways. It was largely new taxes that came in. The speculation and vacancy tax was a big one. There were some extra luxury taxes. I don't think they touched income taxes. They might have touched corporate taxes a little bit in like the first budget. They might. I, I'd have to go back and check. There might have been some adjustments around the top bracket a bit. Yeah, I think they brought another top bracket in. So 
But even that didn't end up being framed as like, we're going to make the, it might've been framed a little bit as make the rich pay, but it wasn't to like overt Bernie Sanders class war stuff. It wasn't. Yeah. It was, you know, what was it going to go back to the, the local party of Canada or it, it was cast more as the, like what Trudeau said in 2015 about, you know, having the people who can afford to pay a little bit more, pay a little bit more so we can help everyone sort of thing rather than a eat the rich. And that's and so, yeah, that's what's going to be interesting to watch going forward in terms of who places them is whether or not they can maintain that because yeah, the, the liberals haven't exactly been in great form for the last little bit, but temperamentally how, how the NDP presented themselves under Oregon's leadership was a huge electoral boon to them. And it's not clear if the, the successors are going to be able to maintain that. Well, and the, I've been thinking about this a lot this afternoon and just like the BC NDP leadership race is going to be starkly different, like than the UCP leadership race or many others, because this is one where the party is still leading in the polls. The party is still popular. The premier is still popular. Most of the cabinet is viewed well, if they're viewed at all, uh, versus like Jason Kenney went down in flames just about like he technically resigned of his own free will, but it's hard to justify that 51.8% of the party liking you is a strong mandate. Like, I think one of the best examples that comes to mind maybe is like when Brad Wall retired in Saskatchewan because he was untouchable and the Saskatchewan party voters chose Scott Moe in the end, who seems still pretty popular, even though I couldn't tell you a damn thing about Scott Moe. He likes so, pipelines. Doesn't I like mean, corporate taxes. That, that's about all I can really say. He's from Saskatchewan. He has to. That's the law. And I think this leadership race will be marked by that kind of boring, who, who wants to continue to carry the torch? And we'll see likely more pushing towards being the next John Horgan, even though Horgan didn't really want to be, want the job rather than like a true clash of ideas or positions within the party. Like even you're seeing with the federal conservatives winning makes everyone get along is it, it, I guess the lesson I'm trying to draw divisions for sure. That said, it is the NDP that there will be people angling for a more ideological approach. I'm sure. But I'm just thinking back to the leadership race federally where I think it was Nathan Cullen in a debate said, you know, this is being marked by violent agreement. And that's the kind of boring tenor I'm kind of expecting. Like a lot of names are already being tossed around. I think we can pivot and start talking speculation around there. The one obvious one that everyone's been talking about since even before the 2017 election is David Eby, current attorney general and housing minister, who's pretty widely respected for his work on both those files. Yeah, I mean, he was seen as a uh, potential leadership candidate last time around, I think, too, but declined it due to having a young family. Now his kids are a little older. You could definitely see him take on that, take on the challenge. And there's definitely been rumors circulating around that oh, both him and Robert Cologne, for that matter, have been doing kind of the initial work to prepare for a leadership campaign. Yeah, I mean, and there's lots I, I of other have have insight up-and-comers. Would he actually be the front runner or in the top, top tier as a leadership contestant? We'll see. Ravi Cologne, like you mentioned, is the current jobs minister, former, I think, multiculturalism and sport parliamentary secretary. 
pretty widely respected. I think, where does he represent? He's from East Delta or Surrey. It's kind of right, one of the writings right on the border. Yeah. Delta North. Delta North. That's the one. Pretty popular. Similarly, also tries to, like a lot of the people I think are thinking of running are kind of the new generation of New Democrats. John Horgan was kind of the shoulder, like he was a little bit connected to the 90s stuff, but he wasn't like, he was like an aide versus Adrian Dix is from that era and Mike Farnworth is from that era. But I don't, like, I don't think Dix is going to run again. I don't see why he would try another kick at the can. He's been pretty well liked in health, but just keep that, you know, you found a good thing, keep with it. Like there's a couple of the former MPs who jumped over to provincial politics like Murray Rankin and Nathan Cullen. I think a lot of people outside BC really think Nathan Cullen is a shoe-in, but I don't know anyone in BC who actually thinks that. Yeah, he he's had a rocky time ever since making the jump, and yeah, it seems far from certain that he'd be the favorite, let alone now. Like, I think he's done well since taking his seat, but the election that he ran in was marked by some controversies that kind of just soured him in the party. And so he had to do some time in the backbench and now he's minister of municipal affairs and is, I think doing pretty well in that. I've heard some positive rumblings, but you know, he doesn't have the same prominence that he did federally. There are people who've run before like Nick Simons, but I don't think, and Mike Farnworth, but I don't think either of them are seriously considering it among the newer crop, Josie Osborne, I think I've seen tossed around. She is over in the land wars, land water resource stewardship. She was formerly municipal affairs and previously mayor of Tofino. I think a lot of people are thinking she's going to run. Selena Robinson is one I I would think would run the current finance minister, but I heard it suggested she's not really interested. Uh, If she ran, she'd probably be on more the not conservative, but more economic centrist wing of the party. And I think the other one, a lot of people, especially on Twitter and social media, are eager to see is Bowen Ma, who is uh, Minister of State for TransLink, who, you know, anyone who's active in BC politics, social media will know who Bowen Ma is and be very excited about, especially if you like trans, the prospect that she could take more prominence. But it's really a race where, given the party's popularity and given John Horgan's popularity, it's hard to imagine, like, a federal MP like Don Davies, I don't know, someone jumping over, hopefully not Don Davies, God. Maybe you could finally get that debt approved that he's been uh, wanting. He didn't pull his friends with the premier. But yeah, it's, it is a case where I could, I could see it being a, a tough one to break into as an outsider. You have a you have pretty well-established cabinet, a bunch of names already there. Like, there doesn't seem to be like an obvious roles for the outsider who's there to shake things up. Like, like you said, it's very, probably going to be very much a who can, you know, carry the mantle forward. And that probably means someone who's already in Victoria and not going to be parachuting in from all. Well, and you just have to think about from the perspective of party members in that they're largely happy. They, I think, voted 87% in favor of Horgan at the last convention, which wasn't like an overwhelming, typical 90, 95% kind of win, but it also was hardly a defeat or an embarrassment. And so most members are pretty darn happy with where the party is at. There's always rumblings that, oh, they should do this, they shouldn't do that. But 
to have an outsider come in, you really need to have that existential issue with your party like the UCP has. And that's why Daniel Smith, who's outside the party right now, or even Brian Jean, who is only recently rejoined and reelected into the party, kind of become the front runners. Like, yeah, I, I don't think anyone can meaningfully take a front runner position as kind of the, the challenger from outside the caucus. That said, it would not surprise me if you had someone try and fill that role as kind of the, you know, radical socialist rabble rouser who thinks the NDP needs to return to true leftism or whatever. But it doesn't strike me as that's going to be a uh, particularly good strategy to actually. And maybe that's where Abby Lewis decides to jump in or someone like that. The dumbest idea was actually in my local Tri-Cities News newspaper as a letter well, to the editor. Than that, but well, I, this I, person was like, we should have someone who's indigenous and knows how to work across all the aisles. We should have Jody Wilson-Raybould run for BC NDP leader. And it's like, that's not going to happen for so many reasons and should not happen. No offense to her too much. Yeah, that just strikes me as a non-starter on so many levels. She's not a new Democrat, that, number that's one. A big, that's a big one. Like, even with the breadth of the BCNDP coalition, I do she, that. she doesn't naturally fit in there. Not to say she's opposed to it, but... I mean, not out of the question that she would have voted uh, NDP in 2020. Well, yeah. The the NDP coalition has, here provincially has done a pretty good job of capturing a lot of urban liberal voters, which Jody Wilson-Raybould would qualify as. That said, yeah, I doubt she's a member of the party. And I don't know, like, besides getting one big ethical quandary right, she didn't have a particularly worthy time as justice minister other than that. Not not giving into the pressure on SNC Lavalin alone is not a, not some of the basic campaign around for provincial office. Or it would be fun. Provincial. It would be fun to see her as premier go tete a tete with Justin Trudeau, but that's that's about it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it could be worse. Someone could have suggested Andrew Weaver, who's apparently become a fan. I think I saw that as a joke. At least he has more nice things to say about the NDP than the party he led. So. I know, Grace can be eccentric. You, you never know yeah. with that. So but. it'll be an interesting leadership race just to see who comes in and whether they try to differentiate the party on any issues. You know, the environment and LNG developments have been a longstanding tension point within the party. And so there could be a chance for someone to take a slightly different tact on that. The government did just announce a deal settled with the Moberly First Nation over Site C. So thankfully that like ongoing controversy has taken off, although I'm sure there are still many people who don't think Site C should go ahead, even though now the local First Nation is on board. And I guess there's the ongoing question around old growth forests, indigenous rights on some of that. I think government still has a lot to be proud of on that file. But, you know, like with Coastal GasLink, there's always going to be controversies and challenges and navigating those was hard enough for this government, let alone whoever gets to take it over. So maybe we'll leave it there. We'll have lots more to cover as we enter a new leadership race. 
for the premiership and the future of our province. So prediction time. By the time we record our regular episode, will someone have announced they're seeking the, the leader? I don't think so. That's only 48 hours away and they won't even have the rules out by then. I think there's no reason to announce so soon. Wait for the rules, get your team together. Like by all accounts, Cab Caucus only learned this afternoon or this morning. Media was annoyed because someone leaked it to Global News National. And so all the BC press had their knickers in a bunch because they were like, why didn't we get the leak first? We've been access journalists for so long. And it's like the government doesn't owe you anything. Your job as a journalist is to hold them to account, not to be buddy-buddy and like share their press releases before anyone else. Fuck, sorry, that was just something that annoyed me today and was like bizarre pettiness by the BC Press Gallery. So yeah, no one's going to announce in the next couple of days. I'm curious to see what the rules of the leadership race will be, what the timeline will be. We've been told the fall, but that's still pretty quick. It's like two, three months. But, you know, we've seen enough long leadership races to know that's usually a mistake. So credit on that move. 